Hello and welcome to Inputting India. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Suresh Rai, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Noshad Forbes to discuss his recently published book, The Struggle and the Promise, Restoring India's Potential. The book is a wide-ranging exploration of India's developmental potential and the challenges that could impede realization of that potential. Dr. Forbes is the co-chairman of Forbes Marshall, India's leading steam engineering and control instrumentation firm. He is also chairman of Ananta Aspen Center. He was president of CII for 2016-17. He was an occasional lecturer and consulting professor at Stanford University from 1987 to 2004. Dr. Forbes is on the board of several educational institutions and public companies. Dr. Forbes, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, many congratulations on the publication of this book. Uh, so what I thought we'll do in this conversation is to pick some of the key themes that I found in the book, I found interesting in the book, and uh, explore them with you, try to get your perspective on those themes. But perhaps uh, we could begin with a big picture view from the book itself. Uh, the book's title, The Struggle and the Promise, <laughs> Restoring India's Potential, it implies that there's been some kind of a decline and therefore a restoration is called for. So, and you've been a witness to much of this history, uh, uh, especially the good growth years and the recent slowdown. You placed 2017 as a turning point. Uh, so uh, tell us in a broad sense, what did we get right to get those many years of uh, rapid growth, uh, huge amount of private investment, export success, and, and so on? And w- what went wrong to uh, lead to the recent slowdown, which uh, continued before, well before the pandemic. You know, first of all, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to, great to be with you, Sirish. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, I, I came to the book from this real conviction that we, we have, we're a country of boundless potential. Um, and I felt this very much based on our experience post-1991, and I think from 19, as I say in the book, 1991 to 2017, pretty well, every year saw India in better shape than the previous year. Uh, you know, that each year saw us, uh, yes, you know, there were there were bumps along the way, reversals and things that we did that we shouldn't have and so on. But each year broadly saw us in better shape than the previous year. Um, I think things, uh, there was an inflection in 2017. Um, and some things started at least in my perspective, being a bit more troubling. And I'll talk about that first. But before that, um, you know, the progress we made from 1991 to 2017 was on many, many fronts. I mean, in in particular, it was an unleashing of enterprise, um, a much more private sector driven economy. Uh, Our economic growth was the best in those years that it's ever been as a country uh, amongst the highest in the world. Uh, and India became one of the world's 10 best performing economies uh, in that long period of uh, 30 years, which is uh, a very considerable achievement. Uh, you know, if you look at the 30 years before 1991, uh, India was not one of the world's best performing economies. We were uh, we were in 1991, we were one of the world's uh, poorest 20% of countries. Uh, and we moved up the ladder quite significantly in the years that followed. 
So there was an unleashing of enterprise, an unleashing of investment, uh, economic growth picked up, exports grew dramatically, exports and imports, both foreign trade grew dramatically. We went from our, you know, being about foreign trade being about 15% uh, of GDP uh, to 55% of GDP in 2012, uh, which was sort of the peak uh, of our trading performance. Um, Post-2012, things started to change. Um, We had investment sluggishness. um, So private investment fell, growth in private investment fell quite substantially. Uh, We had trade start to fall as well. And post-2017, a couple more things changed. One, we started to become more inward-looking as a country. There were several rounds of tariff increases where import duties were raised. Uh, And as as any any economist will tell you, uh, a tax on imports is a tax on exports. And it was no surprise that as tariffs went up, um, export growth also tended to stagnate. Um, And it's only this last year that we've seen a buoyancy in exports, uh, which I hope will sustain and the growth will continue uh, in the years ahead. Uh, Second, uh, I think post-2017, you know, up to then, there was a, a sort of retreat in a sense of the state. Uh, you know, that there was uh, less bureaucratic discretion year on year than there was the previous year. There seemed to be something of a comeback uh, of uh, bureaucratic discretion post-2017. And again, I see that uh, as being somewhat troubling because I think it takes us back to a day when we were not a dynamic, vibrant uh, economy. Um, And then, of course, post 2020 with the pandemic, um, we saw a very substantial slowdown. Uh, many countries in the world saw that slowdown as as we each tried to cope with the pandemic the best way we could, um, and we're still we're still recovering from that. Uh, last year we saw growth bounce back, but it was we bounced back. Uh, we probably grew at about eight and a half percent, but it was eight and a half percent growth last year on a minus 7% of the previous year. Uh, So it was really recovering from the 2021 uh, experience, uh, which we're we're now finally back in absolute terms now where we were two years ago. Uh, So in a sense, we now have to make up for these two lost years to get back on uh, a longer term, more vibrant growth path. And I think we'll have to look at all these three areas. We'll have to look at trade um, and the growth of exports and reducing import tariffs as a way of reigniting exports as an engine of growth. We'll need to look at how we can free the economy even more through reform programs and especially through, again, uh, stepping back from greater bureaucratic discretion, removing that discretion, because that's ultimately what will deliver that more vibrant economy, and then seeing an in, an an increase in the great generating greater employment again. We can talk about that a little later, maybe um, as a way of then generating more investment in capex and so on uh, to cope with uh, a growing economy. So uh, the book is basically divided into three sets of arguments. Uh, one is about the future of industry and what industry on its own can do, and how economic policy should yes. enable. Uh, a vibrant and innovative industry and also uh, 
uh, I mean, voluntary action on the part of industry associations and all. The second is, of course, institutions. And the third is on culture and politics, which you call ramblings, but they were interesting <laughs> ramblings. They were, they were ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would disagree on that. But yes, I mean, it's, you are the author. You have the luxury to call it whatever. Now, on, let's start with the first one, uh, because I'm just drawing on what you just said, that we opened up to trade. Bureaucratic uh, discretion was directionally reducing. So it wasn't perfect. It was, it, we didn't have uh, the state where the rule of the state was properly defined, where it should be consistent with the capacity. But it was directionally reducing it. Anybody investing today would assume that a 30 years later, things will be better and make that investment. Now, uh, if you look at the way the industry and you know, state relation has evolved in the last few years, a few key themes emerge. One is that the state is more and more keen on backing uh, certain champions. Uh, these could be individual firms or also certain product categories or certain sectors. Usually, it's product categories and certain firms. The second, of course, has been a rise in protectionism, as you uh, rightly mentioned. Now, I, I want to understand what happened like uh, in terms of our own experience of more than 25 years of really rapid growth on, but on the back of these kind of policies of gradual opening, um, more competitive domestic market, and having a, a global trade, uh, putting pressure on the firms to learn and to build capability. And suddenly, it seems in a, just a matter of a couple of years, things have changed. So what is the political economy that seems to be driving this huge shift you know, I I think there was a. I, I want to give I want to give credit to uh, to the motive behind it, <laughs> which is I think there was an assessment that was made that Indian industry uh, had been to some extent hollowed out uh, by much greater openness, um, and that we had, for example, stopped making to take an example APIs. Um, we never made electronic components, um, but APIs we used to make. And we uh, started importing APIs because it was cheaper to import APIs from China than to uh, make the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients ourselves in, in our own country. Uh, but our pharmaceutical industry uh, continued to be a vibrant international player on the basis of these competitive imports of APIs. Right. So I think there was this sense that there was this hollowing out that took place and therefore there was a need then for things like the production linked incentive, the PLI scheme, um, as a way of deepening supply chains um, and bringing greater, greater, deeper supply chains and engagement in the local economy. I sympathize with that objective. I think uh, deeper supply chains are a good thing to have. Um, Provided, there's a provided, provided it leads to greater competitiveness. Um, and I think that that's where I would, I would say the PLI policy needs a focus on competitiveness, not on production. Yes, production is the way to get competitiveness, but it is only worth doing if it makes you more competitive. Now, in what time frame? It can be in the longer term. It can be in five years. The production-linked incentive scheme is supposed to run for five years. Um, that's fine. So you provide protection for five years. Um, you provide an incentive to produce for those five years. But then those both must go away. Uh, the incentive goes away. That is supposed to. It's scheduled to at the end of five years. So must the tariff. So must the import tariffs and protection that there should be a schedule for them going away such that in five years time, having deepened our supply chains, 
we should be more competitive as a country than we would otherwise have been without the scheme. So that's the, if you like, correction of the production-linked incentive scheme that I've been advocating and that I talk about uh, in the book as well. I think the objective is fine. Again, you know, deepen supply chains, uh, get more manufacturing to happen, et cetera. All of that, those objectives are fine. I have a second point. Uh, and I talk about innovation a lot in, uh, in chapter five, in the chapter on in-house R&D. Um, you know, for various reasons, we have a more capital intensive and skill intensive industry than most countries at our level of development. If you have a skill and capital intensive industry, then the only way in which that industry will be vibrant is if we invest a lot in technology. So as you would have seen in uh, in the book, uh, I advocate that if you look at a total in-house investment in R&D is about 0.3% of GDP. The world average is 1.5%. China actually invests a bit more than 1.5%. Now, if you look at the latest 2021 numbers, I think 1.7%. Um, we need to grow our investments in in-house R&D as Indian in its industry by a factor of five to match the world average. That's a job for Indian industry. It can be encouraged, supported, et cetera, by the state, but the responsibility is Indian industries to increase its investment in in-house R&D. And unless we do so, um, we will not have a vibrant, successful, skill and capital intensive industry, which is what we have now. Yeah. So. I mean, this uh, raises two questions for me. One is that uh, when I look at the table in the book, that even though we, for 20 years plus we had very rapid growth and we were competing with uh, firms across the world in several sectors in which the uh, trade barriers had been lowered, but the uh, R&D or what you would prefer, DNR expenditure as a percentage of uh, GDP didn't increase at all. In fact, it was roughly the same. And the firm's contribution to that is uh, still less than 40% of that uh, is the firm's contribution. Bulk of it is government. And we can talk about how that is done uh, later. Now, uh, it's a puzzle, right? They, that uh, competition puts pressure, as you, as you argue in the book, to innovate. And innovation, I mean, you need to do development. And sometimes development will once in a while lead to research because you don't have existing uh, I mean, capabilities to actually <laughs> innovate. So... In this vibrant competition of 20 plus years, why wasn't enough push created to firms to invest more in development and research? Well, you know, I, I try to answer it a bit. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's only a hypothesis. Hmm? Um, you know, and I, and I said, you know, that if you, look at, if you look at why Indian industry invests as little as it does in R&D, um, my sense is that the answer is actually because we don't know that we're investing less in R&D. Uh, we think we're investing enough. And my, my reason for thinking that is from conversations I've had with many industrialists, that when I've spoken to them and said, listen, you know, why do, you know, look, Indian industry needs to invest a lot more. They think, yes, maybe Indian industry does, but we're investing enough. We, our company, my company is investing enough. So, you know, and if each industrialist thinks that, then it, uh, we, 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 we don't solve the problem because we don't know we have a problem. Um, so 
I think, in a sense, one of the objectives that I have in the book is to trigger that same introspection to say, listen, compare how you're doing in terms of investments in R&D with the top 10 or 20 firms worldwide in your industry and compare like to like, compare other firms in your own industry. I, how do you compare in terms of percentage of sales investment in in-house R&D? How do you compare in terms of the number of people that you have in R&D? How do you compare in terms of the qualifications of the people that you have in R&D? Now, some of this data is difficult to come by for other companies. Percentage of sales and investment in R&D is easy uh, for any public company, but numbers of people in R&D and all is tougher. But it's usually possible to find out. You may not know it for all top 10 or 20 firms, but you can get it for two, three firms. Compare those numbers. And if you're doing fine, you know, if the, if the, if the investment as a percentage of sales is comparable, if the, if the number of people in R&D is comparable, if the, if the qualifications of the people and the talent is comparable, if the outcome in terms of flow of new products is comparable, then you're fine. And you should say, yes, we're doing enough. If any of those are not comparable, it's an opportunity that we have. And the reason we have this huge opportunity is because of the availability of talent in the country. Um, I was talking to uh, someone who uh, runs an engineering company. We're running an R&D Managers of the Future program. And one of the people there is from an engineering company. And, uh, and he was saying they decided they, had, they were making controls. And he says they set up an R&D team they first tried to, uh, to, to buy the technology, didn't succeed. And they finally decided to set up an R&D team. And in a year, they set up a 30-person R&D team working on just controls for this one particular product. You couldn't do that in other parts of the world. If you wanted to set up an R&D team, you would struggle to put together a 30-person development team in one specific area. In India, you can do it because our engineers are available in abundance. So talent is available here. We have this huge supply opportunity. And I think as Indian industry learns that we must really step up our investments in in-house R&D, I think we'll start tapping some of that opportunity as we start tapping the opportunity and it won't change things overnight, but over two years, three years, five years, you start seeing a flow of new products. The flow of new products will start adding to the success of the firms. It starts becoming a virtuous circle. Moving on to this wonderful chapter that you've written design and the role of design. It, it's a standalone chapter. It can be read as a paper in itself. And uh, this is also related to the development and research uh, argument that we had uh, a bit earlier. But is there more to it than that? So one thing that always amazes me that is that we have so many people who can code, but something which is technologically as trivial as Twitter, we don't create. You know, it's, it's the, the coding required to make a Twitter, at least to start it, when it becomes very big, there are many issues of cybersecurity and all which means heavy investment. is very trivial, but uh, we don't make it. So what's missing in the design imagination in India? So, so, you know, first of all, I would not in any way downplay the importance of, of learning, uh, you know, as you, you, you point to, uh, Ronald or, and his, uh, his, his advocacy of learning as a, as a foundation for creating. And that's exactly, it's exactly the point, uh, the, you know, when we learn from what some other firm in some other part of the world has done and do it in India and do an effective job. And many of our unicorns 
uh, have that model. You know, you take a, uh, you take a retail example or you take a particular product offering or a service offering and you customize it for India and you deliver it in a very imaginative way for India. That's a good design challenge. It's a good application of design in, uh, in a, and it taps into a very attractive market. That's a learning opportunity which we use and we use design to deliver that learning opportunity and that learning to uh, end consumers in a very in a very successful way. I think that's great. We need more of it, not less of it. I think when you have enough of that going on, then at some point in time you start saying, "Okay, now what's the next step?" You know, I can't uh, I can't grow any further by learning from what other firms have done. I need to now move into some creating. And when you start, in a sense, exhausting the learning opportunities, that's when the creating demands start growing. So we need enough of that learning to be happening on a widespread basis across all of industry. And applying within that learning framework, you can apply design very, very productively, very efficiently to coming up with new products that new products, new services that are very imaginative and can be very successful uh, in different fields. I mean, we have good examples of it. We need many more. Uh, just uh, before we move on to the next uh, segment of the book, one question regarding industry bodies, because you've been associated with CII for a long time and other bodies. So what is the shift that you're seeing in the uh, interactions of these bodies with government in the last few years? Because I was reading recently CII's pre-budget Commission had a major emphasis on increasing the PLI schemes, adding more rates uh, of, of PLI. So, uh, see, my point is this: that uh, when industry interacts with government, it can talk about reform, market access, those kind of issues, or tariffs and uh, uh, or or production. There's so there's certain cognitive kind of limitation to how many things you can ask. <laughs> I mean, there's a time constraint and all of that. Do you see a shift going on in the nature of uh, interaction within industry bodies? Is the internal changing changes happening in industry body where more rent related discussions are taking center stage and other issues are taking marginalized? So, so you know, I think it. I, I think industry bodies reflect their uh, their member base, um, and the better industry bodies, and I would argue that CI is one of the better industry bodies. Uh, I think not only represent their member base, but they try to be one step ahead of their member base in terms of asking for those things and working on those things that is the future direction of industry. Uh, This was true of CI in 1991 when it advocated openness uh, and openness to trade, particularly ahead of when a lot of its own industry members were and what they were saying, uh, the Bombay Club and so on were saying, right? Um, And it ended up proving itself right. It proved that that was right for India. That was right for Indian industry. That's what Indian industry in the long run benefited from. Um, I think the same is true now. I don't think the position of the industry body has changed. I think industry, you will always have voices that will argue for protection. You will have voices that will argue for greater openness. Unfortunately, the voices that argue for protection are usually louder. 
um, because the voices that want openness are already happily successfully doing business all around the world. And they're not talking about the Indian market because they're doing business all over the place. So you don't hear them, unfortunately, enough in our public discourse. I think something that we can do better in industry bodies, and it's something we've spoken about in CI as well, is we can give voice, I think, much more loudly to those positive industry voices that want more openness, that want more engagement with the world, that want to export a lot more, that do not want to be protected by, you know, from imports. I think we can give that section of industry a much louder voice than they currently have. Today, I think the, the, the voices that are the loudest are the protectionist voices. Now, moving on to the next segment of the book, I want to cover as much ground as we can so that the listener gets a flavor of the book and then goes and reads it. I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with how closely you've read the book and picked up on all the... So, uh, now the question about institutions, right? I mean, there are, of course, dedicated chapters on higher education and public research, where you're calling for a basically a paradigm shift in the way things are done. On the higher education, you're saying focus less on kind of micromanagement regulation, more on competition, accreditation, autonomy. and if you want to support uh, autonomy, and of course, support those who need uh, support, don't exactly. regulate the fees, that's one. The other is on public research, it's, uh, I mean, a big shift, which is seen in the West uh, anyway already, that uh, do more public research through universities rather than yes. the autonomous bodies. We, both these are very big paradigm shifts, but very, I mean, sensible arguments in my view. My question to you is that, what what is the, so that is the vision, you want to get there. What is the path to it? So, CSIR is a large body, many uh, autonomous institutions work under it. What is the transition path? Because the large political economy of these institutions, they get busy with themselves. They have a, they have, they can protect themselves in some ways. Similarly, on higher education regulation, there is a political economy of that as well. So, well, how do we make progress? Like, what is the politically feasible next few steps to take in both of these? We can talk about. It's a great, great question. Uh, the how do we get from here to there question? So, let me start with the public research point. The public research point, I think. Exactly as you said, you know, the world does public research, uh, not technological research, but scientific research in the higher education sector. Um, how do you, how do we get there? We've tended to do it in these autonomous R&D labs, like in the CSR system and so on. I'm not advocating that you close all the CSR labs overnight. It's not going to happen, right? Um, but we should say that the end goal is that the CSR labs will eventually become technology assistance institutions where their equipment, et cetera, is available to industry to draw on and use for testing, certification, et cetera, right? Um, and the scientists in CSR labs will end up in the university system. This is the end goal. Now, what's the next step? The next step, it seems to me, uh, should be twofold. First, freeze the current budgetary allocation in nominal terms to the lab system, to the government labs. And whatever annual increase we normally provide by way of inflation, right, at least, use that and transfer that and make that available as a fund for the higher education system and for people in the higher education system to, to bid for, to write research proposals and get those funds. If you did that for all the government R&D spending, uh, government R&D spending is quite a large number. It's about 100,000 crores. Um, 
And of that 100,000 crores, it goes up by about seven, 8,000 crores a year. So freeze it at 100,000 crores and then give that increase of seven, 8,000 crores a year, make it available to the higher education system for research grants to research proposals to be written and these grants received by the by the by the higher education system you can start by making it only available to the public education system even that is fine but you know later on open it up more widely if you did that you would in a year you would more than double total total research spending in the higher education sector in a second year it would then be up three times in the four, third year it would be up four times i mean in three, four years, you would transform the higher education system. And second, you would give the resource, the, these institutes would have so much in the way of resources, they would be able to do then one second thing that we need to do, enable every, say, every government scientist employed in one of these labs, say for the next five years without losing your seniority, you can move to any public higher education institution without losing your seniority and be employed there. And, you know, you could simply, you give them, you give them that sanction, you will find, okay, you won't mean, you may not in the first year find a thousand scientists moving, but if you find 50, a hundred scientists, and if they have a good experience because there's this research funding coming in, they have young researchers and students and graduate students that they can have work on their projects. Um, I think in two, three years, you'll have, you'll have hundreds moving and that's how you sort the system in a way you increase the supply of scientists uh, to the higher education system from these autonomous labs and you freeze the current budgetary allocation to the labs in nominal terms and allocate the usual increase to the higher education system. I think it's a workable, a workable way forward. Yeah, it's a pr pragmatic next step to take. Yeah. yeah. So one of the, I mean, the underlying themes of the book that I see is the focus on human beings and their development. So like there's a very interesting passage following the work of uh, Inkeles on how factory makes a modern citizen. It's a very interesting uh, passage I found. Similarly, on public research, the focus that the best output is the research trained person. You know, So training and research have to go together. A person who gets educated is the best output uh, through a research university or a place where research happens. And then they go and do different things in, in life. And of course, human beings work in the institutional setting. So there is a, a full chapter on institutions and their autonomy and their um, and the values that drive the institutions. So uh, my question to you on this is a, a broad one that uh, one of the things that I see in the book is that you say that we have to work with the strengths that we have. So not get China envy or envy of different because we, we have a particular kind of system and it has to work in its own strengths. Uh, if we had a different system, a different path could could be envisaged. Yes. So if you could describe about what are the key strengths that you see in our institutions right now and and what are the ways in which we can build on them and a couple of pitfalls to avoid. That chapter is very rich and it's, a, it's got a lot of content. Uh, I, but I would like you to hear from you. What are your kind of two or three key messages about our current institutional setting? So, you know, as I... Uh, I believe that in a country like ours, I think we're such a diverse place that at the end of the day, we cannot rely on um, one leader. However, 
however strong, however visionary, uh, we cannot rely on one leader to decide what needs to be done. Uh, it has to be a collective output of many independent institutions, which between them set the rules under which we all operate. That, it seems to me, is what what allows a very diverse country like ours to thrive. So that's the argument, if you like, of the institutions chapter, that how do we end up with these many vibrant, strong, independent institutions? So there are some principles there. Independence. Independence comes from financial autonomy. They have must have control over resources and leadership selection. They should have control over their own leadership selection. Does this necessarily mean that the institution will do a perfect job and end up with the perfect leader? No. But you need enough institutions to end up with good leaders most of the time. And if you have enough institutions that end up with good leaders and we treat them and, and uh, I'll come to that, uh, and you have en- enough institutions that end up with good leaders, that enough are independent, enough have financial autonomy, enough set in place the right kind of norms within the institution of how to operate and what good quality means. I think you, I think that's good enough. That's good enough for us. And that would take us forward. Now there's a, Second piece that from the outside and from the political leadership, and I'm talking about union government and state governments here, we need to respect institutions to do their job and let them get on with doing their job. So even if an institution is obstructive from time to time and it stops a political leader from doing something that they would otherwise want to do, right? We have to respect it and say, look, that's what's happened. Sometimes those those obstacles are unreasonable. It's the institution overstepping its, 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 its limits. It's doing something that makes no sense. It's doing something in a strange way. We have to just respect the fact that it will come out in the wash eventually, that between them, if we have enough independent institutions, one will balance the other, we will have forward movement over time, and that will ultimately get us to where we want to go. So I think that's the that's the argument of the chapter. It's not a it's not a revolutionary chapter. I'm not asking for, you know, uh, the world's finest institutions in every respect. I'm not asking for um, I'm not asking for, uh, you know, someone to sit down and design um, brilliant new institutions. I'm saying take the institutions we have, keep working to give them greater independence. Independence means give them control over their own financial resources and give them control over their own leadership selection. If you give them control over those two things and then you encourage them to keep getting better and better people in place in those institutions and recruit better and better fresh people, put better and better leaders in place, we're there. We will have that balance of good independent institutions that between them will set the right rules for us to operate under. Yeah, and a related argument you make in the book is to moderate our expectations from the state. It's a relatively modest yeah. capacity state and it can only do so much. And the flip side of it, that the industry and the, the civil society organizations can do more under the right circumstances. And uh, some of the circumstances uh, have, of course, become more challenging in the recent years, but I mean, they're still solvable problems, right? And so what are the uh, I mean, core functions of the state? I know it's mentioned in the book, but 
Yes. So the core functions of the state, you know, uh, I'm, and I here I'm drawing on Vijay Kelkar and Ajay Shah's really excellent recent book. Um, you know, uh, they, they recommend that there are four and I've added two, right? So the four that they have were criminal justice, uh, which includes the law courts and the police, right? Um, financial regulation and the tax system. So those are the four. Yeah. You know, sort of criminal justice system, the police, uh, financial regulation and the tax system. The two that I added were public health and public education. Um, and I think those are the six that the state needs to do and only the state can do and which it needs to do well. The rest, right, rely on the private sector and rely on NGOs. We have a huge number of NGOs in the country. And one of the roles that NGOs play is that they hold the private sector accountable and they hold the state accountable. That's very useful. Um, so if you have, you know, a particular, uh, a particular set of firms that's getting into bed with the state somewhere, <laughs> right, the NGOs will hold them to account and say, hey, listen, you can't do this. That's very productive. And now, does that mean that every NGO is angelic and wonderful and honest? No. Uh, NGO sector has its bad eggs like every sector. But we should make laws on the basis of the 90 plus percent of NGOs that are really good. Trust that they're going to operate in an ethical way, that they are actually driven by great commitment as the great bulk of them are. And then let, it, let them get on with doing their jobs. Let them get on with getting funding to do their jobs, whether domestic or foreign, uh, and don't keep trying to control everything that they do. Yeah. So now moving on to the final section of the book, which is the culture and politics. Actually, I really enjoyed reading these chapters and yeah, I don't know why you call them rambling. I repeat myself. They're... Well, there were lots of, there were lots of cartoons in it. Yeah, they were, they were that's throughout the book. And uh, I mean, uniformly archaeological <laughs> cartoons, very good cartoons and quotes, funny quotes, a uh, lot of Woodhouse also. Uh, the culture uh, uh, chapter is particularly interesting because it basically goes into the foundations of uh, uh, how societies respond to policies, how different institutions work in different social and cultural settings. And uh, I want to uh, explore a couple of these themes with you. One is the question of focusing on growth and uh, you know achieving glory through economic <laughs> renewal, so to speak, and having the confidence to go and conquer. You know, like. We can take on the word, you know, like I'm reminded of uh, David's look at Goliath, <laughs> which you can find in Florence, that uh, statue there. There's a look that I can take this guy on, you know, like that. And something has changed. Perhaps the growth slowdown has uh, been processed in a particular way by the polity. Uh, but it's a very important insight. I felt that many countries that uh, saw rapid growth episodes uh, actually express the confidence that they can do this. You know, um, I mean, not only many countries, as 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 you as you saw in the book, uh, for us as well. Uh, you know, you know that uh, you know people like Tarun Das of then CI in nineteen ninety one had greater confidence in Indian industry than Indian industry had in Indian industry. <laughs> so you know, and and his confidence ended up being proven right, right? That Indian industry blossomed as the economy opened up. And I continue to have more confidence in, in Indian industry than I think Indian industry has. <laughs> um, you know, I think we are capable of really great things. And I think uh, uh, setting ourselves that ambition um, and, you know, you see it in many companies. Huh? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, there are many companies that are doing 
great things around the world. Uh, and their story has to become the story that inspires everyone else. Now, Indian industry, not just Indian industry, I mean, industry around the world keeps asking for protection. Uh, you'll have these voices that will always ask for protection. And the government should hear those voices and ignore them. Um, you know, it should say, listen, what's in the national interest is opening up tariff reduction. That's what will make industry competitive. And if it's competitive domestically, it can compete internationally. So I think that that path of ensure you're competitive, because if you can, if you can't compete at home, how can you compete in some other part of the world? Uh, you cannot. So it's, it's, it's an essential part of it, that confidence. Now, together with the confidence must go a real keenness to learn. So enough humility to say, uh, I don't have all the answers. Let me learn from whoever has the answers. Um, and if there are other firms, other countries, other policies, other institutions, uh, let me learn from what they're doing. Um, but I will take what my, my learning from them and then I will improve it. So I will have enough confidence then to take it and improve it and make it better. So you need enough humility to learn from the best in the world and enough confidence to then improve that best uh, and make it still better and effective. So that's really the balance. That's the balancing act, if you like, that we need to follow as a country in, in any of our institutions uh, and indeed in any of our firms. My final question to you, or rather theme to explore with you, is this question of voice, trust, social capital, and liberalism. And there's a line that runs through it, Hirschman's argument about when voice requires trust, otherwise you will not express and corrective actions will not be taken. And then that requires a certain kind of polity in which voice can thrive, otherwise people might exit. And there's a risk of the best and the brightest <laughs> exiting. And um, so uh, all, all, all this, there, there's a kind of a common cultural and political uh, theme there, which uh, I mean, of course we as a democracy and with certain kind of institutional integrity and independence already enjoy uh, to, to, to a great extent. In fact, more than we deserve to at this stage of development, perhaps many countries didn't, didn't have this kind of a privilege at this stage of development. We got it early on, in fact, at a very early stage of development. And we've preserved it more or less for a very long time. But uh, are you optimistic about uh, the future on this count that will voices uh, of uh, which go against the flow and say, okay, this is not the right path. We need to take it a corrective path based on their own independent analysis, but do not submit to the right guy, so to speak. We will continue to be heard in a manner that provides a corrective will the uh, will will this the will trust increase in our society because i mean if if anything there's much more of identity politics and there's much more of in group bonding is increasing but out group bonding seems to be i mean uh, gradually i mean being taken apart so are, are you optimistic or i mean I, i'm not asking about uh, i mean naive optimism which anyone can have as an attitude but based on facts uh, you're exactly, you're, I think you've, you've identified the exact concern that we should all have, that the greater the polarization, 
uh, in society. And this is true. We see this in India, but we see this in many countries uh, worldwide. You see it so strongly in the US, in the UK, in many societies. The greater the polarization, uh, the first casualty is trust across the polarized groups. Um, Because automatically people start identifying with their particular leaders and their leaders, um, whether they're in whether they're in the ruling dispensation or the opposition, it doesn't matter, but they identify with their leaders and they distrust the other fellow. They distrust the other person and they say that, listen, I, they're not doing what's right for the country, for society, for me. Um, that casualty of trust is something that is very damaging. Um, you saw it in how we handled the pandemic. Uh, for example, what happened in the U.S. was I mean, it's quite shameful, you know, where one political party um, was anti-vaccine, even though it was the ruling party at the time and ordered the vaccines. I mean, it's crazy in terms of that destruction of trust that took place. Um, In India, fortunately, vaccines were not subject to an issue of trust across the spectrum. But there are other issues that I think we can we can trust. Uh, you know, if you use the institutions of state um, to target particular opponents, then what happens? The opponents start saying, I don't trust those institutions. Um, and when they come into power, uh, they will use the institutions of state against the current people who are in power. I mean, you know, you you destroy trust in those ways. So I think a polarized a polarized society in polity is very damaging. And it's indeed the biggest concern that I have for the use of voice. Now, how do you use voice in a productive way? I mean, I talk about this some. I think we have to increasingly see voice, see dissent as something that's positive. It doesn't mean that if we hear someone and understand them, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with them. Um, We should argue back, Um, but use argument, use discussion as a way of dealing with voice, not don't use suppression, because if you suppress voice, if you even target voice, you won't get voice. The voice will get silent. Um, But then you have the other response, as you pointed out, and that Hirschman talks about that instead of the voice option being used, people will use the exit option. And the exit option may take the form of exit, exit, emigration. It may take the form of don't invest, or it may take the form of I will just be quiet and not do anything or say anything. None of those are particularly useful for us. So I think we should be encouraging voice by encouraging voice, by engaging, by talking. I think we build trust. And then if we ensure that our institutions operate in a manner that is as fair as we can. And I'm not talking about perfection, but each year should see them operating better and more independently and more fairly. Uh, That builds trust too. And I think we have to systematically and consciously try to build trust with people who we do not think alike with. Um, Now, I'll, I'll let you in on a, uh, on a on a secret. One of the things that I try to do is I subscribe to um, a couple of newspapers, online newspapers that are 
diametrically opposed to what I actually believe. Um, I won't tell you which they are, <laughs> but, uh, that was, but, but, but they diametrically, and I force myself to read them every day. Um, because I said that, listen, you know, if I'm advocating that you must not be polarized, then I can't only read the things that I agree with. Uh, otherwise, I'm just as bad as anyone who's polarized. So I force myself to read the stuff. I don't enjoy it, um, uh, I have to say. But uh, it's the only way I know to, uh, to actually try to engage across uh, different groups. And as I read as I read this, I sometimes find things that I agree with. And I say, yeah, there's a point here. And I think the moment you say that there's a point here, there's progress that, that happens. And there's greater trust that I've started now developing uh, for people on the other side of the debate. Yeah. And... Uh... I mean, this is, of course, one of the duties of a good citizen in a democracy to listen to other voices and understand and maybe find something to agree with and even disagree in a reasonable and moderate way and to express one's voice in a measured and analytical and a humorous way as well. And that's exactly what you've done in this book. And uh, thank you so much for writing this book, uh, Dr. Forbes. And I really enjoyed reading this book and I learned a lot from it and I hope to build on this learning and read some of the uh, readings mentioned in the bibliography as well. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sirsh. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation very much and I deeply appreciated your really close reading of uh, the book. And thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. We'll be back soon with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.